you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and that to chapter 6. I want to bring us to a uh, very familiar and beloved passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 from verse 30 down to verse 44. Let me read this for us. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. This is what God's word says. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we believe that the unfolding of your word brings light and it imparts understanding to the simple, and we ask for just that. We ask that your spirit this afternoon would carry forth and scatter the beams of your glory upon the eyes of our hearts as we seek to behold your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. The passage to which we've turned is... One of the most vivid and memorable miracles of Jesus, again, the supernatural feeding of 5,000 men. And by the way, that number doesn't even include women and children, uh, as Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 14 tells us explicitly. But in any case, this miracle is so iconic. It's probably top five of the most famous miracles Jesus ever did, along with the calming of the storm, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, among others. And as I read and study through the Gospels, Every time I come across these particularly iconic miracles, I find myself asking, why is it that we love this account so much? I mean, specifically here, what is it about the feeding of the 5,000 that is so precious to us, that is so memorable, and that we find that it captivates our hearts so magnetically? Well, I think it's because passages like this are such simple yet vivid pictures that show us what God is like. 
What is so good and excellent and praiseworthy about him? Because here, this miracle is just the most childlike object lesson to teach us how sufficient Jesus is. That if you have him, you have everything, even if you have nothing else. Because Christ is the endless supply of every blessing and satisfaction, the infinite and inexhaustible fountain that never runs dry. And this is who God is. That God is infinitely sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing from us, but he calls us to himself that he might give of himself to us and that we might find our highest happiness in him. And so here we see so graphically that God is not some heavy-handed, domineering king who demands that we bring him food and feed him grapes while he's on a recliner and we're just fanning him with palm leaves as if we have to please and placate him at the cost of our satisfaction and happiness. No, this miracle, it demonstrates to us that God has come down, descended from heaven to feed us, to give all of himself to us and that our utmost worship of him would be as we find our supreme satisfaction in him alone and live lives that proclaim that Jesus is sufficient for all of life because he is life. And we see this emphasized and interwoven all throughout this passage, even from the very setting. Notice how this miracle takes place. It says in verse 30 that the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. Well, this is referring to how back in verses 7 through 13, Jesus had commissioned his 12 apostles to go preach the gospel throughout all the villages, and he conferred on them the authority and power to perform signs and wonders to authenticate their preaching. And after a considerable amount of time through the long and arduous missionary journeys, the 12 return and report to Jesus how everything went. And I imagine they were very excited to tell Jesus about everything. But at the same time, to be sure, they were also exhausted. And understandably so, because, I mean, the ministry of the gospel is glorious, but it's also very tiring. Even Jesus himself was often weary and needed a retreat away from the crowds to rest and pray in solitude. And so when the apostles returned, it says in verse 31 that Jesus took them and withdrew from the crowds to a remote area for the purpose of getting some much-needed rest. In fact, it even says that many were coming and going, the crowds were endless, and they had no leisure even to eat. It was so busy, and the people were so demanding that they couldn't even find time for a meal. And so verse 32 tells us that Jesus and his apostles They took a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to some desolate place to be by themselves. But immediately, we're told in the next verse that the crowds, the paparazzi, if you will, they noticed them leaving. One one of the guys hanging out by the shore was like, hey, I see a boat and there's 13 people on it. They're all wearing disguises. Where are they going? I think that's Jesus and his 12 disciples. And they told everyone. Everyone found out. The word spread faster than Twitter. And the demand was so sensational that verse 33 tells us that the people ran there on foot to where they were going, where they were retreating to. They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. 
I mean, talk about fanatic popularity. The word spread so fast that surrounding towns ahead, they, they ran to the shore where Jesus and the apostles would arrive. They got there first. Now, let me be real. If I were in Jesus' shoes or any of the apostles, and I got to the shore and I saw all these people, I would just say, please, leave me alone. <laughs> Give me some space. I mean, I'm with you all the time. Can I just have a break? Can I just have one day to myself? But look at how Jesus reacts when he sees the massive crowd effectively interrupting his plans to rest and recuperate. In verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And he began to teach them many things. Went right back to work, ministering to them, tending to them, giving to them. You see, before this miracle is even performed, we already see in the mere backdrop of this account that Jesus is so willing and ready to give all of himself to meet the needs of needy people. He's the only one who never says no to anyone who comes to him in need. Anytime, anywhere. He's never ever bothered by our requests, our cries, our incessant pining. If anything, the only bothersome issue is that we do not go to him enough. We do not ask of him enough. We're always trying to figure things out on our own. But let this show us that we can always go to Christ. We can always run to Jesus, as we just sang. And he is always so ready to give the best of himself to those who look for him. And, and this is what the miracle itself reveals at the most basic level, that in Christ there is always an overflowing abundance of blessing. Because notice the circumstances that brought about this miraculous feeding. And the crowds had followed Jesus and the disciples all the way out to the desolate boonies. And so they were far removed from the towns. There was no 7-Eleven, no McDonald's, no Safeway, anywhere close to them. It was a barren place with no residents. And after the whole day had gone by, it was getting late, as verse 35 says, and no doubt the thousands who had congregated were hungry, they were weak, and they were famished. And so realizing this situation, the 12 disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Why don't you send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat? That's verse 36. Jesus, why don't you disperse the crowd now before it gets any later and darker so they can journey back to any towns and villages close by for food and lodging? I mean, they're all fatigued and we don't want anyone fainting from starvation. And that's a thoughtful and reasonable consideration on the part of the twelve. But in response, Jesus says in verse 37, okay then, why don't you guys give them something to eat? Now, this was kind of shocking to hear because there were 5,000 men. How in the world are 12 disciples going to feed thousands of people? I mean, that's ludicrous. And so they say to him, verse 37, even if we had 200 denarii worth of bread, it wouldn't be enough for everyone to get a nibble. That's 200 days wages. Give or take maybe about $50,000 worth of bread. First of all, who got $50,000 in their pocket? Second of all, 
Who's going to sell us $50,000 worth of bread? Even if we had that much money. You could feel the disciples frantically wondering how this is humanly possible. Why would Jesus tell them to feed the crowds when it was clearly impossible? Well, that's the point. He was underscoring human inability to provide for self. It was to point out the true nature of human weakness and our insufficiency. You know, if you think about it, we are inclined to feel a semblance of self-sufficiency, but only when, only insofar as the circumstances permit. We, we feel strong and capable so long as we find ourselves in a favorable situation where everything is going just as we had planned. But as soon as those circumstances change, don't we very quickly feel inadequate and utterly helpless to meet our own needs? I mean, it's the basic experience of life, isn't it? Where we go through situations in which our weakness and frailty is brought to the forefront. Beloved, God is the one who brings those circumstances to us to help us realize that we can't provide for ourselves and that we were never meant to provide for ourselves. And it's also that we would look to Him for the provision that only He can give. And that's why Jesus directed the disciples in such a way to make them feel their insufficiency so that they might be driven to ask Jesus, Lord, we can't. We are not able. So could you do something about this? Could you be the one to give what only you can give? And so after being at their wit's end, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, this is all we have. We, all, we, all we could find is five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus tells them, okay, organize the people into groups. And in verse 41, taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Same with the two fish. I mean, this is nothing but the most spectacular exhibition of Jesus' glory as the Creator who came down to be with man. I don't know why anyone even bothers to attempt at offering some naturalistic scientific explanation. It's one thing to alter the elemental properties of water into wine. I mean, that, that's, that's a miracle. Don't get me wrong. That's a whole subject of divine power on its own there. But here, Jesus was bringing forth, creating matter then and there. As one writer puts it, material creation flowed from his hands just as the universe itself had. It was, as it were, let there be bread, and there was bread, and there was bread, and there was bread. There's no other explanation but that he is God incarnate, and that with his infinite power as creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, Jesus fed those who are hungry. This is who God is. He comes to us in weakness and in our famished state to nurture and give to us. And notice especially verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets left over full of broken pieces and of the fish. 12 baskets, enough for each of the 12 disciples who were busy 
serving the food to all the groups. Jesus takes care of even his laborers. But the point is this, you see, when God provides, he gives an overabundance of his blessing. They were not fed with scraps. The crowds weren't even fed to a moderate degree of being satiated, just enough to get by. No, they were stuffed. They couldn't eat anymore. There was so much left over. This is the generosity of God, the abundance of his provision for his people always. Now, church, let me ask you this. Do you believe that in Christ, you are today blessed abundantly to the point that you are not short of anything? I don't mean that in just some cute, theoretical way. I'm not talking about, you know, like hashtag blessed or anything like that. I'm talking about every one of God's people, everyone who is following Jesus by faith is yesterday, today, and every day in a position where God has not withheld anything good from them. Instead, he has lavished ample provision for each of us such that there's nothing that we lack. And if there were a situation better for you, he would have put you there. But the struggle for us is to believe that this is indeed true, isn't it? Because many times it doesn't seem like it. Life is harder than I would like. There are certain circumstances that I wish would be different. I mean, isn't this often how we think? We're always thinking about how we wish we had more. We wish we had something better. We wish we had something easier. And in these thoughts, we begin to wonder if God cares about us, if he notices our struggles, our uncertainty of how our provision will be met. But let this miracle remind us of how generous and abundant is Christ and his provision for those he loves. He gives the very best of himself, providing in excess even when we don't feel like it's true. But the Lord knows your full situation with all of your needs, all of your wants and worries. In fact, He is the one who purposefully puts you in that situation. Because look at this passage. Here, it was divine providence that led the crowds to follow Jesus into the desolate place. They were running after Jesus, and Jesus went to the desolate place, and so that's why they found themselves in that desolate place. And it's actually kind of funny how this account is written. Did you notice in reading it how comically repetitive it sounds? Verse 31, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Verse 32, so they went to a desolate place by themselves. And verse 35, the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, we're in a desolate place. I think we get the point. I mean, why why is the location so important to Mark? Why is he repeating it so much? It's because it's meant to ring an Old Testament bell in our minds. You see, the phrase, desolate place, can also be literally translated, place of wilderness. Sound familiar? Remember after leaving Egypt, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And in fact, even this little detail in verse 40, 
of Jesus telling the people to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties is reminiscent of Exodus 18.25, where in the wilderness of Sinai, the people of Israel were, were encamped in groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, under the chiefs that M- Moses had appointed over them. And so this scene here is reminding us of Israel in the Old Testament, where after leaving Egypt, they followed God into the wilderness, just as the crowds here were following God incarnate into the place of wilderness. And remember, Israel in the Old Testament, they got hungry. Well, actually, they got hangry, but that's beside the point. But they were in need. They couldn't find food for themselves. And so what did God do? He gave them bread from heaven, supernaturally, manna from heaven. And all of this was not just to stuff their bellies, but it was to teach them a very important lesson, as Moses recounts in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, by leading Israel to the wilderness, God was teaching them to not rely on themselves. But he was stripping them of self-sufficiency so that they might learn to seek God's provision and trust his promises, which he spoke to them constantly. He promised them constantly that he would never leave them nor forsake them. And that rather than grumbling... They were to look to him for help and provision and he will supply plentifully because he loves the people he has redeemed. On and on, every one of these words that came from the mouth of the Lord, Israel was reminded to trust God as God and that he would never fail to be faithful. You see, the wilderness was a blessing from God for their souls to teach them to find their sufficiency in him and experience the joy of his supernatural provision. And so Jesus led those crowds on that day, letting them hunger so that they might receive the food that only he can give. And in the same way, church, Jesus leads us many times into the wilderness of life to reveal his extraordinary sufficiency. That even in the wilderness, there is still ample satisfaction to be experienced in him alone. You know, we're such a self-sufficient people, aren't we? Especially you know, living in the part of the world in which we live, the Bay Area. We, we've been conditioned to do everything in our power to avoid ever, ever have to go into the wilderness. To avoid it altogether. Building up all the hedges, all the plans A through Z. And I'm not saying it's wrong to plan, but, but our minds and our hearts have been conditioned to escape the tribulations, to escape the wilderness. Because we don't like being in need. We love the feeling of being in control. But I want you to see here that on this day, look at how abundantly satisfied the crowds were even in the wilderness. These 5,000 testify to us 
that there is more joy and blessing to be had in the wilderness with Christ than to be in the comforts of a metropolis without Christ. Because Christ and his loving provision is our only true sufficiency. And to prove this point further, notice these interesting details that Mark goes out of his way to tell us about. Verse 34. So when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so that's nice. You know, it's an expression of Jesus' love and care for the crowds. But couple that with verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Okay? It's kind of in, very in-your-face detail. I'm glad the grass is green. Uh, in fact, John's parallel account is even more conspicuous. In John chapter 6, as he records the same event, he says in John 6 uh, verse 10 that Jesus said, have the people sit down. And then John gives a narratival insert. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down. It's like, what? What's up with the grass? I mean, who cares? It's just grass. I mean, they're practically screaming it to us. Hey, guys, there was grass that day. What's the big deal? Again, does anything here ring an Old Testament bell? Jesus with a shepherd's heart. People sitting down on green grass. Absolutely. Mark and John are laboring to show us a beautiful picture of Jesus as the incarnation of Psalm 23. The Lord Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even though the crowds are in the wilderness, what comes to the forefront of this picture is Jesus as our good shepherd, whose presence is so all-sufficient that there is abundant blessing to be found in him even in the wilderness. That is to say, even the wilderness of life is like green pastures, so long as Jesus is our shepherd, so long as we are following him and he is with us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. The, the, the dim uncertainty of the obscure future, the dark clouds of our sorrows, our concerns, our pains, through every veil of shadows, we don't need to fear. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And isn't it so appropriate that the psalm ends with a depiction of the Lord's lavish generosity? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so here Jesus kept that promise and fulfilled the psalm as he overflowed every plate with more than enough food to satisfy thousands. And he intends to keep that same promise with each of us as we follow him with our lives. Church, God doesn't promise you the circumstances that you would forge for yourself. But he promises that he is with you always and that he will be more than enough. And this incredible miracle that Jesus did not only assures us of his provision for all of our earthly needs while we are still walking this life, but it ultimately points us to the eternal hope and promise of the glory of his presence 
In other words, the purpose of this miracle is not just to keep our eyes down on the things of earth, but to lift our eyes up to see beyond the needs and desires of this temporal world. To fail to do so would be to miss the grand point of this wondrous miracle. Because you see, the feeding of the 5,000, it was a sign. If you read John's gospel, just all throughout the gospel, you'll notice that he never uses the word miracle. But instead, he uses the word signs. That's why John chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine, John says that this was the first of his signs manifesting his glory. And so again, later in John chapter 6, in the parallel account of the feeding of the 5,000, he says that people saw the sign that Jesus had done. Now why is John so fixated on this word? It's because he's emphasizing that these signs and wonders are meant to be pictures that point us to the reality. You know, maybe we would benefit from calling it a signpost, a sign with an arrow. And if you don't follow the sign to where it's pointing, then you've kind of missed the whole point. It's all meaningless in the end. And so here the question is, what is the sign of the feeding of 5,000 pointing to? What is the destination that it is meant to drive us toward? To, to where must it take us and direct our ultimate attention? Well, quite simply, the realization that Jesus is everything. That all of our needs and desires and satisfactions are found not just in what he gives, but found in him in the giver himself. I mean, think about it. Imagine you were there that day in the wilderness as Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed the 5,000. Imagine you had the courtside seats. You were, you were watching this whole thing. Okay? How foolish would it be to be merely fixated at the food? I mean, don't get me wrong. It was important. And there was a real need of hunger that Jesus wonderfully supplied with that food. But how senseless would it be being there that day, seeing what Jesus was doing, and for the big takeaway to be, cool, I got food. I'm so happy right now. I mean, say this Jesus is really good at providing food. You know, in fact, uh, can I come back tomorrow? Because with the rising food costs, I mean, it costs like $5 now to add avocado to my sandwich. Maybe I could save some money. Can I see the menu for tomorrow? That is flat out carnal. That's being dull in spirit. It is to treat Jesus like some vending machine. Because anyone there who witnessed this miracle should have said, Hold up, hold up. I'm grateful for the food, but who is this in whom there is an endless supply of nourishment and blessing and satisfaction? Who is this who, even when I am in the wilderness, deprived of all earthly resources, is proving himself to be more than sufficient for all of my needs and desires? I mean, thank you for the bread. It was great. I enjoyed that. But I want to know, who is this heavenly bread giver? Because it would appear that if I have him, and if I could just always be with him, 
then I would have everything. You see, the true bread that we all need is not the earthly bread that even Jesus gives, but the true bread is the person of the bread giver because he is the bread of life. This is what the sign was pointing to, that we would see how, how knowing Jesus, being with Jesus, loving Jesus, following Jesus, obeying Jesus, trusting Jesus is our supreme satisfaction and joy. But sadly, John tells us in his gospel that many people miss the sign. Because the very next day, the crowd sought after Jesus because in their carnal spiritual blindness, they just wanted some lunch again. And so Jesus tells them in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Now, you're not following the sign towards pointing, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And what this tells us is that you can seek after Jesus, but do it all for the wrong reasons. Such that you end up missing the whole point. You miss the sign, and so you never get to the real Jesus. You see, church, we must always be honest in asking ourselves regularly, what is it that we seek in Jesus? Is it ultimately the things that we get from him? Or is it him? To know and worship him. To grow in trusting that he's better than anything that this world can offer. To seek his good and perfect will for our lives, even if it means willingly following him into the desert, into the wilderness. But so long as he is with us, and all along to trust that he is sufficient for us. That's what the signs point to. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's some of you here today who perhaps you have yet to come truly to taste this bread of life. Maybe you've been in the church your whole life and you're happy to be in Jesus' vicinity inside the doors of his church amongst the people of God. But all so as long as you just get the temporal bread that merely feeds your fleshly desires. If this is you, Jesus tells you, do not live for the food that perishes. There is so much more to life than just eating and drinking and wandering aimlessly until you finally hit the grave. You're not just a big clump of cells whose sole purpose is to stay alive with mere food and drink and just to follow your fleshly instincts throughout all your years on earth seeking after only temporal gratification. That's a very naturalistic way of thinking where you're essentially just another animal. It's no different than how the beasts of the field live. You, beloved, you are created in God's image. You are an image bearer of God. You are meant to know Him and to delight in Him, to reflect His glory with your life. And that is your highest happiness. And you can have this true happiness of the soul when you come to feed on Jesus alone. The bread of life come down from heaven. As he gave himself, his body broken, his blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. So that sinners like you and me might be reconciled to God, adopted as his children, and that we might live this new life in obedience to his perfect and loving will for us. 
If you are here without Christ, come to Him by faith. Repent of your sin. Trust in the sufficiency of what He has done by His life, death, and resurrection. And receive the eternal food He gives in Himself. And if you believe yourself to be too weak of a sinner, too ruined and too destitute, too far from the grace of God. Listen, you are the perfect candidate to receive Christ by faith because as we see here in this miracle, Jesus does not feed the strong and self-sufficient, but he has come to feed the weak, the powerless, the helpless, sinners like you and me. This is the gospel of God's salvation. And church, I pray that this, this miracle And what it reveals about God would be seared into your hearts by the Holy Spirit that you might be reassured of the true nature of God as the giver and provider of every blessing. You know, at our church, we began administering communion more regularly starting last year. And in leading up to that, I took almost an entire year to really study the theology of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And it was through that study that I just realized, my goodness, what a precious gift to the church that Jesus instituted in that upper room. And I know you guys have members meeting after this and you're going to take communion. But it's because in that sacrament, through that Lord's Supper, He reminds us visibly and tangibly that He is so unlike the pagan idols who demand food to be offered to them in sacrifice. You have to feed them. So we see the issue of food offered to idols all throughout the New Testament. But our God, the one true God who is eternal, infinite, self-existent, self-sufficient, He has come to feed us with all of Himself, even His own body and blood given for us. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's as that hymn goes, Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in His hand Christ our God to earth descendeth. Our full homage to demand. Praise be to God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for who you are and for the revelation of who you are, the ultimate, final, perfect revelation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid, but you are the giver of all things, the giver of life and breath and everything to mankind, and even the giver of new spiritual life by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for the gospel. I pray that you would continue to edify this church in the gospel and build them up in the most holy faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.